Please stand for the reading of the word. This morning we're going to be reading out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 12, going through 18. Um, if you do not have a Bible, feel free to take one from the seat behind you, the back of the chair behind you, and um, it would be our gift to you. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Thus says God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, its power, God, its revelation, the way that it uh, conforms us to the image of Christ. We thank you for all of that. And God, we pray um, that we would be empty vessels this morning, that we would be um, just in your hands for you to shape us, mold us, transform us, conform us. Um, God, however you would work in us today, God, we just surrender uh, to your work. And so we ask that you would do this. Lord, I ask that you would just uh, be with me this morning and help me to uh, effectively proclaim your word as uh, it was written to not add to or take away from it. Lord, I pray that uh, you would bless every hearer, that uh, they would hear uh, not just words on a page or or uh, thoughts that I have gathered, but they would hear uh, the word of life, Lord, and that is my prayer. God, I also just want to lift up a couple people, Lord. I want to pray for Phoenix as she's requested prayer for her daughter-in-law. I pray that, God, whatever the need is there, that you would uh, intervene and that you would show your power on her behalf and that uh, she would be uh, God, just just blessed with your favor in that situation, Lord. Uh, God, I also want to pray for Jennifer Moya, who lost her grandfather. Lord, I pray that you would comfort her and um, give her peace, Lord, as well as the rest of the Moya family. Um, God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this day when we can gather as the body and hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Glenn Polk, it's good to see you, man. So... Uh, this is our, our long-lost prodigal son, Glenn Polk, who has had uh, a, an interesting medical season in his life, but God is faithful, and here he is. So good to see you, man. I'm so glad you're back. So we had Twyla last week, and to, to be honest with you, here's a little full disclosure. Right now, Glenn is a little white spot right there. My eyes don't go that far back, but I saw him come up for communion, so I'm assuming that shape right there is Glenn Polk. That's, that's what I'm, I'm banking on it. So if, if if not, ma'am, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, 
so anyway, but uh, uh, Twyla was here last week for the same reason I didn't see her till after service. So Twyla, good to have you. Glenn's not nearly as fun without you, so I'm glad you're here too. So <laughs> I, I thought I'd get some agreement with that. So. Well, we're going to go, I'm, I'm, uh, I guess y'all are working on, I'm super hot here. I feel like I'm speaking with some godlike reverb today. Maybe that gives me more authority or something. But um, I want to uh, look at this verse that, uh, that Rochelle read for us. And um, I want to point out first uh, about the whole verse there that uh, Paul makes several points in this passage, this short passage, about the nature of our salvation. Um, First, if you'll notice in the section that we read, Paul speaks of it as hope. That he, he connects our salvation to hope. He doesn't connect it right here to just a deliverance or an escape from something. He calls it a hope. And I think that's a great way to describe the result of our belief. And second, he moves on and he shows that the law as a means, and by that he means the Old Testament law, as a means of appeasing God was being brought to an end. Third, he says that now it's only through Christ that the burden of the law and its effect on our hardened hearts is taken away. And then fourthly, he says that in turning to the Lord, we receive the Spirit of God, which results in freedom. And then lastly, he says that we use this freedom to turn to the Lord, and in so doing, we are progressively changed to be like Him. Now that's just a bird's eye view, just kind of quick shot of the passage that we read. But I want you to know that there is a lot, I mean a whole lot, packed into these words. Now I'm not going to address all of it this morning. In fact, I'm going to address very little of it. You, you guys who have been here a while uh, know that I like long, detailed sermon series so that we can have greater clarity on passages of Scripture. But I'm going to resist the temptation to start a long series this morning. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to skip ahead to the final verse of our text that Rochelle read. Um, Now, I provided the earlier verses so that we could put this last verse in context as we explain it. Um, But that's all. So, uh, what I want to do is, uh, let me skip you ahead, and we're going to look at verse 18 again. And this is what we read. Paul says to the Corinthians, And we all, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same I'm sorry into the same image from one degree of glory to another this comes from the Lord who is the spirit now what I want you to know what I want you to understand is that um, this verse tells us it really concisely how we change now, I want to ask you, uh, for, for just total honesty, if you're a believer here, if you're not a believer, don't worry about it. But if you're a believer, I want to ask you for total honesty. How many of you have desired to change more than you have since you've become a believer? Raise your hand. How many of you still get frustrated with the, with the deadness of things that you see in yourself? Okay, so the question that we're, we're going to examine this morning is, how do people who were once dead in sin come to life? That's the question. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that when Jesus found us, we weren't sick, we weren't broken, we weren't in error. We talk about this a lot, but we were dead. 
completely deceased. So the question is, when Jesus finds us, the Bible says that God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. How do we who are dead come to life? How do we go from rotting, decaying corpses to vibrant, living, and healthy? It's a great question. How do we go from displaying fallenness at its very worst... Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever put on a show for the world of how, how, what exactly the definition of total depravity was? I've done that. How do we go from that to bearing the same image of Christ? Because that's what Paul is saying here. He says, we're changed from one degree of glory to another until we arrive at the image of Christ. The same image is what he calls it. So the key words of this text are being transformed. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that being transformed is given to us in the present tense. It's not will be transformed and I have been transformed. It, it, transformed. it is that you are being transformed. And everybody, everybody ought to say a big amen to that. That's good news. That what I am today is by the work of the Holy Spirit, not what I will be tomorrow, right? And what I was yesterday is not who I am today. That's good news. That's a great aspect of the gospel. So, the, so it's a present tense phrase, and it's not about being saved in the, in the lowest common denominator uh, meaning of that word. We're not talking about being saved, but we're talking about being radically remade into something completely different than what we have been or what we currently are. And so my question to you this morning, if you examine your life from before you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, are you a different person? Can you look at the evidence of your life, the decisions you make, the choices you make, the things you desire, all of the above, and say, I am different than who I was? I'm not asking you if you're perfect, because I, I, I couldn't do that. I'm not perfect, but, but are, is there a transformation? Because I want you to know that the hope of the gospel is not to pull your backside out of the flames of hell. Help me out here, somebody. It's lonely up here. Um, the, the, the goal of the gospel is not to pull your backside out of hell. The goal of the gospel is to make you a member of the body of Christ and make you to bear the same image of Christ. That's a lot bigger than just escaping hell, isn't it? This is important because some people come to Christ, they come to know Christ, and they wonder, what's next? Okay, I've, I've made a commitment of my life to serve Jesus. What's next? Others are exposed. They see other people. They see, uh, they're exposed to a concept or a vision of mature faith, and yet they have no idea whatsoever how they themselves are to attain that. And so they ask questions like, now that I've made a decision for Christ, am I just to return to the law and, and try to be as good as I can be so hopefully my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and somehow I can trip my way into heaven? Or do we, do we get really mystical and, and aesthetic and, and, and you know, embrace disciplines like extreme fasting and meditation and all of those things so that we can become something, so that, our image, the, uh, so that we can embrace the image of Christ? So the question again centers on this fact, how do, or question, how do we change? How do we accomplish transformation through the gospel? So the transformation that Paul's speaking of in this passage begins with belief in Christ's sufficiency. He calls it turning to the Lord. When we turn to the Lord is what we say. And here's what I want to point out to you. That if you have any desire to change, you have no hope of change until you turn to the Lord. 
That it, it matters deeply that you start there, that you recognize your need for Christ, that you repent of your sin, that you turn to Jesus, placing all your hope in Him. That when you turn to God, it necessarily implies that you've turned away from everything else. You can't face in two directions at the same time, right? So you turn away from everything else, your hopes, your belief, your efforts. That's the first step. And then we're told uh, that in our, in our passage here that there are two things necessary to being transformed. In this one verse, it tells us there are two things necessary to being transformed. The first thing is that we behold or that we look upon Christ. That we turn our eyes to Jesus, that we look away from some things and turn our eyes to other things. This is how Paul puts it. We all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, looking at Jesus in all His glory, are being transformed into the same image, the image that Christ bears, from one degree of glory to another. That's the first thing. The second thing is that this cannot be accomplished without the presence and the operation of the Holy Spirit. He makes this clear. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we're going to answer two questions this morning. Number one, how do we look upon Jesus? And how does the Spirit work within us? Actually, we're going to talk more about how the Spirit works within us next week. But this week we're going to talk about how we look upon Jesus. And if we don't answer these questions, listen to me carefully. If we don't answer these questions, we will over-spiritualize this passage. And we will think mystically as opposed to practically. So what does gazing at Jesus, looking at Jesus, beholding His image, His glorious image, what does that really mean? Does it mean that you and I are just supposed to sit at home and think worshipful thoughts about Him all day? Is that, you know, just kind of get alone in our room, in our little prayer closet and think about worshipful thoughts about Jesus all day? Or has God given us ways that you and I are able to see Him more clearly? And how does one experience the presence of the Holy Spirit and surrender our, his, uh, our, surrender our lives to His working with, uh, within us? How does He help us to actually see Jesus more clearly? These are the questions. And the result of seeing Jesus uh, more clearly, being literally transformed into Christ's image. Now, pause right there and ask you, how many of you are truly hungry to see Jesus and be transformed into His image? I am. I want to be there. So in the church I grew up in, these questions that we're asking today uh, were always, without fail, answered mystically. In other words, there was a deep spiritual, almost spooky mystery about them. So we sang songs in our church services like, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. Now I'm not bashing the song. It's a beautiful song. But the problem was, as a young man, I didn't know where to look. How do I turn my eyes to Jesus? I certainly didn't know how to look and turn my eyes to Jesus. And I just could only assume, as 16 or 17 years old, that everyone in the congregation was having visions of the Son of God that I wasn't having. I didn't understand how that worked. How do I turn my eyes upon Jesus? Well, it got worse. We sang this gem of a song. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I can feel His mighty power and His grace. Now watch this. I can feel the brush of angels' wings. I see glory on each face. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Now that's a beautiful sentiment. 
But I've got a confession to make. Beautiful sermon. But I've got a confession to make. And don't tell anybody. I have never felt the brush of an angel's wing. Not once ever have I ever, ever felt the brush of the angel's wing. And worse than that, oftentimes in the church I grew up in, when I looked around the room, the faces were kind of sour and miserable. There wasn't glory on each face. And so... Here's the problem. If angels' wings and glorious faces are the proof of God's presence, I've never really experienced it. You following me? So how do I know that I'm looking on Jesus and that I'm in the presence of God? To simply say to you this morning, and in the message right here, and say, the key to, the key to change, if you really want to change, you've got to behold Jesus and surrender to the Holy Spirit. To me, that doesn't seem clear enough. You and I have to know how to turn our eyes upon Jesus. We have to know how God's presence is known and recognized and what it is that brings us into His presence. See, Jesus' church throughout history has always understood that God has given us gifts. Now, I'm not speaking today, we'll do that sometime, but I'm not speaking today of the list in 1 Corinthians of spiritual gifts that Paul lists out there. But God has given us gifts that are designed to help us see Christ more clearly and enjoy God's presence. And by gifts, I mean the various ways that God has ordained to communicate grace to us. Because what our great need as, as humans, as believers, is that we would experience more and more grace. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so that is the greatest gift when God just, just bestows upon us grace. And grace is so much more than just, again, escaping hell. Grace is the, is, uh, the power to know God, the power to live in this life. All of that comes through the means of grace. And so, these gifts that God has given, historically in the church, were called means, as in a means to an end. We call them the means of grace. And the means of grace can be divided into three main categories. First of all, we have common grace. Now, common grace is the grace that all people, whether they're believers or non-believers, it's the grace that all people experience, all of them. In, in, when Paul and Silas were in the city of Lystra, the people there, um, because of some miracles they performed, they thought that, that I'm sorry, I said Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas were in, were in Lystra. The people there thought that they were Greek gods. Uh, they thought they were uh, Zeus and Hermes. And man, they threw a celebration. And Paul and Barnabas are horrified at this blasphemy, calling them gods. And so in their appeal to them... To repent of their sin, they appeal to common grace. Listen to what Paul says. He says, In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, He did not leave Himself without witness. Watch how He gave witness to Himself. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Listen, rain and harvest that both good people and evil people receive are a witness to God's eternal existence. That when, when you know, a pagan has a fruitful crop, then all that is is God saying that 
that, there's, that he is a God of grace. He's a God who loves. He's a God who provides. And, and that's what we call common grace. Well, we move on to a more exclusive level of grace. The second means of grace is called extraordinary means of grace. And extraordinary means of grace are the ways that God gives grace through miracles or through divine providence. And this is like when someone is healed of cancer uh, because of a prayer or, or when some prayer for a, a, an immediate need is, is answered in a divine fashion. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost. This is what happened at the Red Sea when God parted it and people went through. This is extraordinary grace, this massive outpouring of God's intervening power pouring out grace on His people. But they're called extraordinary. These types of graces are called extraordinary for two main reasons. Number one, they are rare. And because of that, they're very, very, very unpredictable. Now, referring again to the church I grew up in, we thought we could come up with some formulas to to cause more extraordinary means of grace to happen. And most of those ended in failure, to be honest with you. They're rare. They're unpredictable. They're, They're done by God's sovereignty. And because of that, number two, they're also clearly divine in their operation and their origin. You know, when when someone is healed, nobody here on this planet can take credit for that. It's a divine act of God. Would we all agree with that? So we have common grace, we have extraordinary means of grace, and then lastly, and where I want to focus this morning, is we have what's called the ordinary means of grace. And these are the tools through which God most commonly brings about His will. The, the, tool, the tools that, that God most commonly distributes His grace in our lives. It is these ordinary ways of God that we will focus on most today. Now, again, full disclosure. I can almost sense the groaning out there. Why? We don't like ordinary. Ordinary is not what we're all after, especially in, the, in Western culture. There's this groan, oh, ordinary. I don't like ordinary. I want the next big thing. I want the magic bullet. And it was this kind of thinking that caused my generation in the 80s and 90s to spend untold millions of dollars on late night TV ads to get rock hard abs and, you know, whatever in six weeks using the butt master or the thigh master or whatever we could get our hands on for $35 or whatever because we wanted something quick. We wanted, we wanted the thing that would, that would change things quickly. But, but what we didn't do is diet and exercise. The hard road, the ordinary means to get from point A to point B. Listen to me. I'm going to say this as clearly as I can. Ordinary is not sexy. No one says, that is the most ordinary woman I have ever seen. And man, I like what I'm seeing. Ordinary is not sexy. We don't want ordinary workouts. We don't want ordinary jobs. We don't want ordinary relationships. We don't want ordinary churches. We certainly don't want ordinary pastors. We want big, we want new, we want innovative. We don't want ordinary methods to grow in grace. We want the cutting edge, the innovative, the extraordinary. We want big results, and we want them right now. So we call down fire from heaven. We, we you know, spend hours and hours in some kind of uh, you know, spiritual soaking kind of exercise instead of just do, using, utilizing the tools that God has given to experience grace. 
And I'm not necessarily saying anything bad about any of those things. I'm saying that God has given us a surefire, clearer way to experience His grace. That's the good news. This kind of thinking has permeated, just soaked the church. Best-selling Christian books, if you've been to a Christian bookstore or looked on Amazon lately for the bestsellers, they have titles that sound so much more like self-help tropes than gospel proclamations. Few of them, few books that you're ever going to uh, see make a dent in the, in the bestseller list, few of those books have themes of staying faithful, enduring suffering, witnessing in the face of opposition, or laying down your life for your family or your community. They tell you how to be the best you you can be. Well, guess what? I've looked in the mirror. The best me that I can be it ain't that good. I need a be- I, what I need is a great Savior, not a great Mark. But let me remind you of something that I alluded to earlier. Healthy people eat vegetables and exercise. And as a result, they live longer. Rich people save money and they invest wisely over the long term. And the result is, when when all the chips are down, they have enough. Smart people read big books and take hard classes. And as a result, they get ahead in life. And people who know God... Embrace ordinary means that He has ordained to fill our lives with grace. We don't have our lives filled with grace by attending more revival services. We have our, our, our lives filled with grace by pressing into the means that God has provided to experience grace. Y'all still with me? Check your neighbor's pulse for me real quick. And although this... This decision that I'm talking about takes persistence and it takes discipline. It is very rewarding in both the short and the long term. Listen to me. Ordinary does not mean boring or mundane at all. So let's talk about what the ordinary means of grace are and discover how they help us to behold the face of Christ and experience the Spirit's power. So what are the ordinary means of grace? Well, traditionally, the church has recognized the Word or the Bible prayer, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the church's care of souls as the, the, uh, the ordinary means of grace. So we're going to talk about the word and prayer this week, and next week we'll tackle the sacraments and the church. Um, but how do these things, these, these four things, help us to see Jesus and therefore be changed into his image? So let's begin by taking a look at the word, the Bible, the scriptures. The Bible is vital. Listen to me carefully. The Bible is vital. And yet I meet Christians all the time who will literally tell me, I never read the Bible. I never read it. And I'm not saying that to, to, to judge you or to make you feel terrible and, and shame you into reading the Bible. Um, uh, but I'm telling you that your growth in grace, is the, the scriptures are vital to that. Many people who do read the Bible approach it as if it was an exhausting chore. Ah, oh, I got it's you know I've got myself under this you know obligation to read the Bible this year, and you know I've got to check off my box and all that stuff. So we look at it as an exhausting chore. We just don't do it at all. But remember, this is what I want you to hear. This is what makes all the difference in whether you will open the pages of that book or not. This is it. Remember, we're we're pointing to the Bible as the means by which God transmits the grace necessary to conform us to to Jesus Christ. 
The Bible is not something that God wants us to read so he can give us a, a little gold star in eternity. He's not, it's not reading it. We're not reading the Bible so that we can, you know, be, you know, an example of a model Christian. We're reading the Bible because we desperately, I can't talk this morning, desperately need the grace that will conform us to the image of Christ. Listen to me. You cannot be transformed without the scriptures. Jesus said as much. John 6, he said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What does that mean? Without the words that he's spoken to us, no spirit, no life. See, Jesus transforms us by the power of his word when we hear what he says, when we apply it by the power of the Holy Spirit, and and that causes life, that causes grace to flow into us. John identified Jesus in chapter 1 famously as the personification of God's Word. He said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He identifies Jesus as the personification of God's Word. So when we get the Word into our lives by faith, what we're doing is we're bringing Jesus close to us. But we're talking about beholding Jesus. So how does the Word of God help us to look into the face of Jesus and be changed into His likeness? Well, first, and most obviously, it is the Word, it is the Scriptures that describes Jesus. It's in the Scriptures that we read of the birth, the life, the miracles, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also where we read of His eternal existence, the prophecies of His first coming, the doctrine of how He now rules the church and how He saves the lost, as well as many, many promises of His glorious return. The Bible alone is the authoritative guide to Jesus Christ. Junior and I were watching a YouTube video last night with Pastor John MacArthur on uh, on Larry King. You know, Larry King has passed away, and so we're watching this, and he has a uh, a spiritualist, a Catholic, and an a Orthodox Jew on there, and they're having this discussion. And it was interesting that everybody, every single person on that video had a definition of who Jesus was. And they were nuts. It was crazy. The spiritualist said, well, Jesus is just, you know, the wonderful, uh, eternal thought that we can all be better persons and sit around singing Kumbaya. I don't know, he lost me pretty quick. So I don't, something to that effect. Um, the, the Orthodox Jew obviously had no use for Jesus whatsoever. And the Catholic um, had a very skewed view of who Jesus was by adding a bunch of church tradition to it. And only Pastor MacArthur said that, that it is the Bible who defines who Jesus is. And he's right. You cannot have a true definition of Jesus if you try to define him outside the Bible. The Bible's the authoritative guide. So to know the Bible, listen to me carefully, to know the Bible is to truly know Christ. You do not, I know this sounds harsh, but you do not truly know Christ because you made a decision, prayed a prayer, went forward, raised your hand, any of that. You know Christ because He's given you means to know Him. And that means is the Scripture. That's how we know who God is. It's not automatic. 
To know the Bible is to know Christ. He is the central point of every single verse from Genesis to Revelation. People can certainly, we see it all the time, people can certainly read the Bible as a dry religious text, but those who have hungry souls transformed by the Holy Spirit are going to devour Jesus on every page of the Bible. Charles Spurgeon once said this, I love this. He said, how much that can be said of the Lord Jesus may also be said of the inspired volume or the scriptures. How closely are these two allied? How certainly do those who despise the one reject the other? In other words, you despise the Bible, you reject Christ. How intimately are the word made flesh and the word uttered by inspired men joined together? I love that. The Word declares also is not only a description of Jesus, but the will of Jesus. To gaze upon Jesus for all eternity without knowing what He commands or what He provides is like staring at a feast beautifully prepared and not knowing how to eat it. But the Bible makes clear what we're to do with Jesus. It tells us how to feast upon Him. Just a few examples here. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The first thing about Jesus is to believe in Him. To believe that He is who He says He is. Secondly, John 14, 15, If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. We don't only believe in Him, we obey Him. That's how we we, uh, know the will of God, by reading this in the Scriptures. And then, what is our mission? What is the mission Jesus gave us? Well, Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We know a lot about Jesus. We know everything we need to know about Jesus from the Scriptures. But not only do we have a description and, and uh, the revealed will of God, or of Jesus, the scriptures also, is, also proclaim to us the promises of Jesus. There is nothing you can look for in God or from God that you won't find in abundance in Christ Jesus. Now think about that. Because in one way or another, we're all pursuing things in life, not even necessarily sinful things, but we're pursuing them outside of Christ. And I'm telling you this morning, I'm declaring to you that the way that we find everything that our souls are longing through is not around Christ, but straight through Him. That's how we find what we're looking for. This is what, this this scripture could not be more clear. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God. How many promises of God? All the promises of God find their yes in Him. Who's Him? It's Jesus. And that is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So we turn our eyes to Jesus by gazing at him in his word. When the eyes of our faith are beholding him, we're becoming more like him because we understand what he's like, what he requires, and what he promises. So the Bible, read, memorized, studied, preached, submitted to, causes grace to flow into our lives. And that may sound to you like work, But let me just remind you that it's also work to search for hidden treasure. It's hidden for a reason. And you don't just land on the beach and dig it up. You've got to find it, you've got to search, you've got you to uh, look for it. And that's how the Bible tells us to seek God, is to search for Him as treasure. So my question to you this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ is a treasure hidden within the Scriptures 
And it's worth all of your life, all of your effort to go with the shovel of faith and find that treasure. And I'm telling you it is. I'm telling you my life has been dramatically changed by finding Christ in the Scriptures. The Scriptures have the power to transform us into what we could never be otherwise, and that is the image of Christ. Hebrews 4, you all know this Scripture, and it says it perfectly. For the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the next ordinary means of grace we've got to consider this morning is prayer. Now, I don't know, because I don't want to preach heresy this morning, I don't know how regret plays into our experience of the next life in heaven. And yet, even though I, I can't imagine regret in heaven, I often wonder if I will arrive there to see the vaults of God's bounty and weep for all the grace I missed out on simply because I didn't ask. I just wonder that. I don't know how that works. That may be completely silly. But I wonder, what is available to me that because I am not praying, because I'm not asking, that I will miss out on? Matthew 7, 8 seems to indicate there's things I'm missing out on. Why? Because it says this, everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now what does that tell you? It tells me that I better be asking. I better be seeking. I better be knocking. And let me ask you this. Is that scripture still up there? Leave that up there for a second. Let me ask you this. Look at that scripture. And I want to ask you this question. What are the limits on that promise? What are they? Somebody tell me. Where are the limits? Where does God say, ask and you'll receive up to this point? Seek and you'll find up to this point. Knock and the door will be open, but only this much. Look at it. Look at it. It's not there. Everyone, that's a big word, who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be open. What are we doing? What are we doing neglecting such a promise as this? What am I doing? What better use of my time is there than to, than to march right into the vaults of God and say, I'm here, I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. There are no limits on that promise. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Prayer is a magnificent means of receiving the flow of grace. Because through it, like the word, we see Christ. Let me prove that to you. Jesus told us in the, in the Lord's Prayer, He said that we are to pray, Your kingdom come and Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are you praying for when you pray that? This is what you're praying for. You're asking God to reveal His power, which we already saw is all, is all displayed in Jesus. We're asking God to reveal His power in our day-to-day ordinary reality. He loves to answer when we call. 
God responds when we say, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. And he shows us Jesus at work in power. You want to turn your eyes to Jesus, start praying. So many times our prayer, though, is not focused on seeing Jesus. It's about begging God and hopefully getting what we want or what we think we need. We often come... Now, listen, I'm going to make a reference here. Some of you will get it, some of you won't, but... We often view God like Vito Corleone in The Godfather. If you've ever seen The Godfather, Vito Corleone is this big mob boss, and his daughter's weddings happen, and people come into his office, and they kiss his ring and ask him for favors, and you know that might be breaking somebody's legs or something like that. But, but this is what we often approach God by. We, we don't, we're not in his office because of love. We just kiss his ring, we make some compliments, and we, and, and we hope he fixes our problems. But this, I'm telling you, is a sad way to view the one who sent Jesus so that he could be a loving, providing, and caring father for us. What a sad way. He's not inviting us into his office so that we can grovel and make empty compliments and kiss his ring. Listen, he's invited you into his lap, into his throne room. He doesn't want to be your godfather. He wants to be God the Father to you. That's what he's after. James 4.3 indicts us all when it says, You ask and you don't receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But if our concern was his kingdom... If our concern was His glory and the outpouring of His grace, how would that energize our praying? When we're in need, we trust His promises more because we've been beholding Him more. You cannot look upon Christ without loving and trusting Him more. Which just empowers your prayer. When there are times that He doesn't answer in the way we desire, and that's going to happen... We would trust that He's not ignoring us or denying us, but He's using our circumstances to shape us, to discipline us, and to cause us to trust Him more fully. We, we say in one uh, statement, we say, we love God, we trust God, God is wonderful. And then on the other hand, we say, but God didn't meet what up my need. Well, God is working on His own time, tra- uh, on his own time frame for His glory and your benefit. And praying and seeking His face helps us to realize that more and more. Living this way becomes a fountain of grace. Prayer becomes less about answers, though you will see answers, because the Bible promises, but it becomes more about seeing Jesus and pressing into Jesus. And Paul describes what I'm trying to tell you perfectly. So I'm going to close with this verse. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul is talking about all the revelations that he's received and, and you know the Bible books that he's written. But he says this, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Paul is saying that his potential for pride was so great that God actually introduced circumstances into his life to keep him humble. We have no idea what that was. Paul does not elaborate. People have speculated. But he's saying that, um, that, he is, that, that he was given these things by God's divine hand to keep him from becoming conceited. Verse 8. Three times, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to him, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore I I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What is he saying there? Paul had difficulties in his life. He asked the Lord to remove these difficulties three times. And every time God said, no. But what he, what he said beyond that was that he had something far more valuable to give to Paul, far, far more meaningful for him. He wanted to bestow upon him grace. And so he told him, Paul, this stinks. This messenger of Satan, this thorn in your flesh, it stinks. But let me tell you something. The secret, Paul, is this. That I'm going to give you grace. And my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I love this story. Because in this, the power of prayer and the power of the word meet together in a beautiful outpouring of grace. Paul prays to God for help and God speaks the word of God. And he promises abundant and sufficient grace for Paul. It comes through prayer and the word. Grace transformed Paul's prayer into boasting. Now think about that for a second. A slickly worded bestseller or a fashionably dressed evangelist can't do that. But the grace that God poured out on Paul made him able to boast in his weaknesses and in his pain. A bunch of super spiritual navel gazing or psychobabble couldn't make Paul brag about his weaknesses. But grace could. And grace was transmitted to Paul by God's holy word and by prayer just like it will be with you and with me. When Paul received grace from these ordinary means, the power of Christ began to rest upon him. Now think about what I'm saying there. He said the power of Christ was resting on him. He's saying that he was beholding Jesus right in the middle of some nasty circumstances. So here's my charge to you. May we be people of the word May we be people of prayer so that we may see Jesus and experience grace. Would you stand with me? If you would, place your hands in a receiving position. I want to pronounce a benediction from the Lord's word over you. 2 Peter 3.18 May you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.